Yeah, good morning and happy Mother's Day once more. As you can see, we are in the middle of a series called Love Has Called My Name, and we are looking at the ways in the book of Galatians, actually, in the book of Galatians, that Jesus' love changes our lives and changes how we see the world and everything around us. And so this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We are in the middle of chapter 2 of Galatians, and so our scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and your right. It's Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. God's Word this morning. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with the name of Matthew Henry. He was a, a famous commentator on the Bible. He wrote a, a famous and culture-shaping 18th century six-volume commentary on the whole Bible. And all of you, are, that's what you're wanting for Christmas this year. Uh, he never would have produced that, though, if his, his parents had lived by their society's rules at the time. His mother, Matthew Henry's mother, was from a wealthy family. And his father began courting her, though he was from the wrong side of the tracks, as the saying goes. Her parents, unhappy with the humble, lowly origins of her suitor, complained, this Philip Henry, we don't really know where he's from. Their daughter, who was a strong Christian, like her future husband, said this. It doesn't matter where he's from. All that matters is where he is going. That's pretty wise words. And essentially, she's expressing a truth that we find all throughout the New Testament, and especially here in Galatians 2 today, that inside the church... What makes you somebody is not your race, it's not your color, it's not your economic status, not your socioeconomic background, it's not your list of accomplishments or degrees or money, but what makes you somebody and something is something else altogether. And part of our vision as a church here, Mosaic Church, is to be a multi-ethnic congregation made up of all different kinds of people groups that you normally wouldn't find associating and relating to and reconcile to one another outside a church or outside in the public square. And part of our vision as a church is to be a church 
that offers healing in this area to churches, organizations, and groups around our city and beyond. We're more than that, but we're not less than that either. So let's ask, how can we as a church today, how can we bring healing to our culture in the crucial areas of race and culture? Now let me offer three ways this morning that we together, that we can increasingly move towards being a multicultural, multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse local church. All right? So in many ways this morning, you're going to get one part Bible teaching, uh, one part vision casting, and one part, I hope, massive dose of encouragement. All right? So, again, how can we become the mosaic God's called us to be? How can you become an agent of healing in the world? Well, three ways we're going to see from Galatians 2 this morning. First, we're going to see what it means to walk the line. Then we see, we'll see we have to become the strong and finally find yourself. And we'll look at what that means. But let's begin here, number one, and, and see what this means. Walk the line and just ask, well, where are we in the book of Galatians? Maybe you're just joining us today. Well, we saw last week uh, that in Galatians 2 that the Apostle Paul has been writing to groups of Christians in a state in the Roman Empire called Galatia. And he's warning them about a group of false teachers and bad theology that was threatening to up in their lives and rip apart their community and faith community to shreds. This group was a high-pressure group of church lobbyists who were pressuring churches in this way. They were saying that in order to be really pleasing to God, in order to really be a Christian, a person had to accept not just Jesus Christ, but they had to accept Christ plus cultural Judaism. They said, yes, Jesus is good, but you need to keep something more. You need to keep the ceremonial laws of Judaism in order to be loved by God. And we saw last week that Paul actually inserted himself into the situation. He said, no, the truth of the gospel is that you are saved by faith in Christ plus nothing. Saved in Christ plus nothing. I thought maybe I might get one amen to that line this morning. All right, I'm going to double check. I'm in our church today. Okay. And to illustrate this truth and to show us how the gospel actually works, and specifically with an eye towards racial reconciliation, Paul tells us now a story. And it's not a bedtime story he's about to tell us. It's actually not a pretty story at all. It's actually a story of failure and sin in church leadership. What happened? Well, this happened. Verse 11, when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But then Paul says, when those people arrived, Peter began to draw back. And he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because he was afraid of this high-pressure church lobbyist group. Now, Paul here, for all time, for all eternity, he's documented a moment where the leader of the church of Jesus has failed and fallen into the trap of racism and cultural superiority. And this is astonishing, especially when you consider who Peter was and what had already happened to him. We read earlier in Peter's life, over in the book of Acts, which documents the early church. In chapter 10, God showed Peter that because salvation is by grace alone, now anyone regardless of race or culture or social status, is equally lost in sin, but now can be equally accepted and loved in Christ. And this is what Peter said about that experience. Peter said, God has shown me, Peter, that I should not call any man impure or unclean. 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Don't you love that verse? Fantastic. Yet, yet, now sometime after this, Peter is refusing to eat with the non-Jews. He's refusing to eat and be seen with those who, you know, weren't his own kind, so to speak. The same man who declared that God had shown him he should not show favoritism is doing what? Showing favoritism. Yes, thank you. The very thing he said that we should not do. What's he doing? He's doing that, right? Which is why Paul called this whole thing hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. So how did Paul handle it? How did he handle the situation? Did he say to Peter, well, you know, Peter, racism is a bad thing. You should stop being a racist. Shame on you. No. Did he say, Peter, you're breaking that racism rule? Or even, Peter, you know, you've sinned. God said racism is bad. No. All of those would have been, could have been, were true statements. But that's now not how Paul handled it at all. No. What did he say? He said to Peter, Peter... Here's Paul's response. You are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And church, this is an amazing statement. And I'll go so far as to say this this morning. This one verse, one verse, Galatians 2.14, is the single key you need to living out the Christian life. It's all right here. You say, man, how could that be? Well, let's consider what this phrase actually and literally means. To walk in line here is literally the word orthopedeo in the Greek. Now, it's a combination of two words that you likely already know. If, for example, uh, you were blessed like my children are with their father's bad teeth genes. You do for them what my mom did for me. God bless her this Mother's Day, right? You take them to what? An orthodontist, right? Where they get their what? Their dentist straightened, essentially, right? Ortho, you see, means straight. And pedeo, the second part, is where we get the word podiatry right? or the study of feta. Podiatrist is what? It's a, it's a foot doctor. And if you've ever been asked to by one of Austin's finest, you know, one of a police officer, to get out of your car and walk the line then you've had orthopedeo demanded of you. And so Paul says here, Peter, you're not doing orthopedeo. You're not walking straightly here. You're not walking the line of the gospel. And before we go any further and talk about what that line actually is, what you've got to see is the overarching principle of what Peter is doing. Peter is saying, The gospel has lines it shoots out into every area of your life. And right away, again, this single phrase, this thought likely upends much of what you think church is or what it ought to be or maybe even what the Bible's all about. Because Paul is saying here that the gospel, the essential message of Christianity, which is that you are saved and made pleasing to God and accepted and cherished by Him on the basis of nothing else but faith in the person of Jesus Christ alone, doesn't work as much like the foundation of your house or a building as it does the center of something. See, if the gospel were only the foundation of Christianity, like the slab in your house as a foundation or the, the foundation of this building, the gospel would only touch a piece of your life in the same way that a foundation 
only touches a piece uh, of a building. It only touches the bottom floor. And so if you, you know, you build two stories, multiple stories, you go up. Now what's at the top isn't touching the bottom. And many people think of the gospel like this, like something you put in one time. It's pretty good. And, you know, as you grow, you sort of move on from there into deeper truths. And there are many great and amazing truths in the Bible. But can you see The writers of the New Testament, the founders of Christianity, saw the gospel not like a foundation, right, but like the center. Paul didn't see it like that, like a foundation. No, and neither should you. See, the gospel isn't just the foundation of your faith. No, it's the very center of a person's life. It's like the central hub of a wheel that now shoots out spokes into every area. And Martin Luther summarized it and put it like this. It's Got a bit of humor in it, as you'll see. He said, the truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Thank you, Martin. What was Peter's problem here, huh? Was it, no, was it that he didn't know, you know who the Antichrist was going to be? Right? Was it that he didn't know the seven steps to glory? I mean, listen, Peter's problem wasn't that he wasn't moving on from the gospel. His whole problem was that he had. He had failed to keep what was primary and central in front of him. And because Peter only thought of the gospel as the foundation and not the sinner, he had brought this church in Antioch to the brink of collapse. That's what he'd done. And if you today, if you were on the brink of collapse in any area of your life, it's because you've done the same. So you don't move on from the gospel. No, you move out from it, along the course of it, along the trajectory of it, into every other area, along the lines of it, so to speak. And so let's ask now, what, finally, what was the line that Peter had failed to walk out? What did he need beaten into his head again? You know, sort of slapped upside the head, kind of like you slap a vending machine, right? When you, you, you put your money in, the, the bag of chips doesn't fall out. What do you do? You know, you, you shake it and you beat it. Why? So that the goodies <laughs> will drop to the bottom. And that's what Peter needed to have happen to him. Um, here's the line. That we are all equally fallen people in need of God's grace. And because we are all equally fallen, once we are accepted by Christ, we are all now equally accepted. See, that's the line Peter failed to walk out when it came to race and culture. That's the truth he failed to walk in. And that truth, that line right there, right away, shows us two things about race and about culture. Let's look at them in turn briefly. At first, this line here shows us actually what racism really is. See, racism, like every other sin, any other sin, is an effort to do for ourselves what Jesus has already gloriously done for us. See, every sin a person ever commits is done in an effort to cover themselves. See, when you say you try to cover yourself, make yourself feel loved, feel safe, right? Feel secure in a deep way. And I'll give you two quick case studies that I hope will show you what I mean. First, think about how you handle confrontation. Right? Now, some of you don't handle confrontation. That's kind of part of the problem. We'll get to that. All right. When someone wrongs you, for example, and you confront them in a rage, 
What are you doing? Well, you're using unrighteous anger. There's something called righteous anger, but this isn't it. Using unrighteous anger to cover yourself. See, anger is a means of an emotional recovery. You're trying to get back something that's been taken from you uh, that you think you've lost. What are you doing? You're covering yourself. On the other hand, when someone wrongs you and you don't confront them in love because perhaps you're afraid of what they think or what might happen, what are you doing? Oh, the same thing. You're still covering yourself, making sure you're okay on your own. Either way, you're trying to do for yourself what Jesus has already done, made you loved and secure. Second case study briefly, suffering. When you go through tough times, let's say you blame yourself. What are you doing? Oh, what are you, you've forgotten something. You've forgotten you're already loved. And the penalty for your sins has been paid. Therefore, whatever you're going through at this moment cannot be punishment. It can only be aimed at redemption. See? Or, on the other hand, when you suffer, if you suffer, and you don't blame yourself, but you blame God, you get angry at God, what have you forgotten? The lines of the gospel, that you are fallen, that you have broken God's law. And what proof do you have anyway that you, out of all people on planet Earth, deserve a perfect and pain-free life? Right? You've forgotten that. See, either way, you're not covering your difficult moment or season with what Jesus has already done for you and been for you. Your Savior, substitute. See, racism, therefore, is just another form of works righteousness. It's using something, working with something besides the gospel to make a person or a group or a class feel special or significant or loved or beautiful. And there's really no way, there's no way to deal with a problem until you see the spiritual roots of a sin. And the only way to deal with any sin is by going to the root. Every sin is just a way of trying to feel loved, affirmed, and cherished apart from the grace of God, right? So therefore, let's ask, what is racism at its root? It's this. It's not just a sin, although it's that, but in specific. Racism is a denial of grace. Denial of grace. And this is what Peter missed. He missed it. Therefore, for us, application, having a bias towards being a multi-ethnic church is a clear example of what walking the line will do of the gospel. Walking the line of a gospel of grace gives us a bias towards being a multi-ethnic church. Why? Because we show that God's grace is for all peoples, right? But secondly, we're also, we also see here in this line how deep racism really goes. Think about who Peter was, right? A person chosen and discipled by Jesus Christ himself. He saw Jesus love people. Peter experienced the power of the new birth and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he writes about it over in 1 Peter in 1 Peter 1, 2, and 3, the power of a new birth. Acts 2, we see him filled with the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, where God equalized all languages, all cultures. Peter was the leader of the church and had been for 15 years. And yet, 15 years into his Walk with Jesus. He's still struggling. He's still struggling with this issue, which shows us this. Racism just doesn't come out that easily. doesn't come out that easily. And if racism was a problem for someone who walked with Jesus personally, our working theory ought to be that it could be a problem for us. A problem for us as well. 
Do you see your heart tend towards being any other kind of thing, any other kind of sin? Greed, right? Maybe Morgan. Anger, maybe. Okay, lust. Well, maybe have me on that one. Racism could be, probably is in there too. But that's why we have a Savior, see? That's our first strategy. That's number one. Uh, Our first strategy, in a sense. We've got to walk the line of the gospel. How can we be a church that values all races and cultures? Walk the line. Right? Because we're equally fallen, therefore we're all equally in need of God's grace. So, now, what is, what's the second strategy here? What's the second way we can live out our calling to be a light in the city? And I'll put it like this. Number two, you must become the strong. Become the strong. Let me just set it up this way. The reality is, what we are trying to do as a church here is just not easy. Cultural conflicts are just going to emerge. Different cultures have different values. When it comes to a painful issue, something that happens, do you bring the issue up or stuff the issue down? See, it's a cultural approach. Uh, how should life be lived? More communally, more individually, right? Everything about music, whether it's got a beat or maybe it doesn't have a beat, right? How you dress, how you see time. If you're on time, maybe not so much on time all the time. Uh, Entertainment styles, views of authority. All these are different ways that cultures vary by culture. And when you throw all those things in a room in a community together, as much as you can make a tasty stew out of it all, you can also make a huge mess if we don't handle it well. So how can we do that then? How can we make a stew and not a mess out of Jesus' people? Well, to answer that, let's look and see actually how the early church did it. And we'll see that through a case study this morning of two churches struggling with the same kinds of things and tensions any other multicultural church struggles with. And these two churches were one in Rome, one in Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, and the second one in Rome. And in each church there was a massive cultural class and deep racial tensions going on that the Bible gives us amazing solutions for that we can use in our lives in church today. Now let me set it up. The context of both situations, both in Corinth and in Rome, was a controversy between two groups that Paul calls the strong and the weak. And this is a bit complex, friends. So give me about four minutes here to sort of unpack it and then press it on your hearts. All right. Church number one. Here we go. Church number one, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 8, we see that in Corinth, Paul addressed a dispute over, wait for it, meat offered to idols. Yeah, you're stunned in the silence. Doesn't seem too riveting today, right? That's it? Well, yes, that's right. It was actually a big deal because it was common for meat sold in the market in those days to be dedicated to idols, you know, sort of approved by Zeus, you know, stamped by Artemis, you know, approved by the gods, have the, the gods stamp on it. And some Christians wouldn't touch it. They said, that's bad food. We shouldn't eat food offered to gods. How can we eat food stamped with another god's name on it? But other Christians in the same church didn't think it was a big deal. They thought, hey, we can eat that stuff too. That's church number one. Church number two over in Rome. Another issue, a different issue about food also. Some believed that all believers should continue to keep the Old Testament laws and not eat 
tasty bacon for breakfast, right? Couldn't eat pigs, forbidden by Jewish custom. While other Christians there didn't think there was anything wrong with adding a side of sausage to the Kirby Lane breakfast platter they got when they went out to eat after church. Then Paul saw both churches as divided between what he called the weak and the strong, with the weak being people whose consciences didn't grasp the gospel. And in both cases, the weak were Christians who essentially, when it came to food, took the MC Hammer approach. You know, you can't touch this. All right. Sorry. You guys know I like Hammer. If you were at the volunteer night, you may have seen that for yourself. Okay. Why were they weak? They were weak because they they tolerated no gray area. They wanted to know whether every food and practice and custom was right or wrong. And today people ask all the time the same questions. Is it okay to eat Easter eggs with my kids? You know, some people told me Easter was like this supposedly pagan holiday. Is it okay to have a Christmas tree? Listen, this stuff is just, even if it were, it's just food sacrificed to idols. You know, I don't care if you go to the store, you go to Target, you find a bag of peeps. That says, you know, blessed by Zeus, you know, approved by the the gods. You know what you do? You eat the peeps. You eat the peeps. We, the Paul says, we know that an idol, a false god, is nothing at all. You eat it, right? And have a Christmas tree, great. See, the weak wanted a lot of rules and boundaries when it came to what to eat. They tended to be narrow-minded, judgmental to those who didn't obey those rules. The strong, though, on the other hand, were those who had a grasp of the gospel. In Corinth, the strong understood the gospel that peeps are just peeps. Peeps are just peeps. And over in Rome, the strong understood that, you know, pig is just a pig. It's just a pig. The ceremonial laws are obsolete. Now, those are the facts. That's the case. But when you look a little deeper, you find there was actually a darker driving force there. The force of cultural tension and racial tension that caused those things to emerge. In Corinth, the weak were Gentile, Greek, pagan believers. They had been saved out of an idolatrous culture. While the strong would have been the Jewish Christians. Who knew a Greek god was nothing at all? Who's Zeus? They would have asked, right? And who's Artemis? And who are these gods? On the other hand, in Rome other church, racially speaking, it would have been reversed. The the weak would have been Jewish Christians, right? The strong would have been the Greek Gentile believers who knew that in Christ, the old ceremonial laws were obsolete. See, can you see? In one city, the Jews were strong, the Greeks were weak. In the other city, it was reversed. The Jews were weak and the Greeks were strong. And the important point to note here, and here's the point, is that in one situation, one group's cultural background made that group blinder to one aspect of the gospel, while in another situation, that same cultural background made the same group wiser about the implications of the gospel, which means this for you today. There are aspects of what it means to be a Christian that you do see clearly because of your race, because of your culture, and... There are aspects of what it means to be a Christian today that you cannot see because of your race, because of your culture. And the only way to break free from your blindness, the only way to become strong in every area, to become truly strong, is to do what Paul told them to do next. All right? So what did he do about it? What was Paul's command in the middle of these racially charged situations? He said this. He called both the strong and the weak, Romans 15, to accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. 
The answer, in other words, to racial and cultural tensions was and is a relationship. It's a relationship. Think about that. Paul gave them a relational solution. He's saying, see that person you think is weak, uh, has the wrong position about politics, you know, voted for the wrong person, the wrong man, or maybe this year a woman, you know, right or wrong. All right. Some of you follow the news. I guess it's second service doesn't. That's okay. First service is now. All right. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Has the wrong view about politics, voted for the wrong person, wrong views on race. He says, especially that person, here's what this means, bring them into your life. Bring them into your life. Especially, he's saying, build a relationship with them. Especially when it's not your kind of cultural thing. You know, he said, go see, go hang out with them. Have them over to eat. Go see a movie with them. You know, go see a Tyler Perry movie. If it's not your cup of tea. Or go see, you know, Star Trek 27. If that's not your thing either, when that comes out. Go on a protest march with them, perhaps. We ask you, do you eat with receive into your life people of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds or is the only time you're ever in a multicultural environment is when you're here on Sunday mornings the only time see Sundays are a great start it's so great me affirm you applaud you some people don't even get that far but to really break the power of racism and to demonstrate that we as the church are the sign of God's coming kingdom it's going to have to go beyond just a Sunday morning alone, and sitting in the same room, and inviting other people into our lives who are different, and think differently about what they think about. Maybe get that different later on the podcast. All right. Receive them. Bring them in. How? Just as Christ accepted you. Did he make you change your mind? Did he make you change your political persuasion? Did he make you change your race? God, no. He brought you in on the basis of grace, right? And as we do this, church, as we become this strong and begin to relate to other groups, as you, you know, sort of go see Medea's family reunion together, you know? It's like the church movie night we'll have, all right, next month. Or Star Trek, whatever. Whatever, whatever movie. Let me just give you one application as you and I, as we walk this out together. Don't tell people their race and culture and cultural distinctives don't matter. Don't tell them that. You say, well, why not? Why can't I? Well, let me show you why. Two reasons. First, Revelation 21, we are told that the eternal city of God, the end of time and its final state, will be enriched because, look at this, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. See, in other words, In heaven, each culture and race will bring particular gifts to the glory of God that have been birthed out of their own cultural background, their own cultural distinctives. Heaven will have different kinds of dress, different kinds of music, customs in it. Second, after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and received what the New Testament calls his resurrected body, he still maintained all his human particularities. He was still male, wasn't he? not female. He was still Jewish, right? Not a Gentile. He still had a skin color. He was still of a certain height. He in his resurrected form wasn't just a amorphous, paramecium-like ghost. You can see through. No, 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 no. This tells us that what is distinctive about you is intentional, on purpose, given by God, and that those things won't simply melt away when God returns to make the world new. 
It is a mistake, therefore, to insist in church that we need to drop our cultural distinctives and just be Christians together. Let me ask you, will we drop our distinctives in heaven? No. Then why should we drop them here? See, every expression of Christianity, therefore, is embedded. It's embedded in a particular human culture. This is a beautiful thing. This is how the gospel spreads. It's all going to be different. See, when a faith system says to you that your cultural distinctives don't matter, that everybody ought to dress the same, listen to the same music, all that, that's called radical Islam. That's what it is. You've got Sharia law. No cultural distinctives. But the beauty of the gospel is that it doesn't come in like a boulder and smash culture. No. How does it come? Jesus said, like a seed. It goes into the ground and transforms it from the inside out. It takes what's in the local soil and produces a different taste everywhere it shoots up. Which is going to mean this. There is no purest expression of Christianity. There's no purest church anywhere. And listen, you don't want there to be. See, that's how ISIS thinks. That's how the Taliban thinks, right? But now, back to our story. Peter had forgotten all of this, hadn't he? He'd forgotten all of it. He'd forgotten the gospel. And here he is, back in Galatians 2. He's tearing the church apart by his hypocrisy. So what happened to him in the end? What happened? Where did he go? What did he do? Well, what happened? What happened is his buddy Paul said something to him. That's what happened. What Paul said next changed Peter's life, and it can change yours today too, if you'll allow it. And this right here is the third and final way that we all can be agents of healing in the world today. Here's what Paul told Peter. He said, Peter, number three, you've got to find yourself. How to find yourself. Hey, Morgan, man, what does that mean? Is that kind of like a new age thing? Find yourself. You know, when you hear those words, you may think of a nice vacation on a sandy beach somewhere, right? Finding yourself. You may think of a, a moment on a, on a therapist's couch, you know, listening and having them listen to your problems. Those could be great. They might be. But that's not what Paul's got in mind here. Look at what he said in response to Peter's hypocrisy and sin. He said, Peter, we who are Jews by birth, not sinful Gentiles, know what? That a person is not justified by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, we've trusted Jesus that we might be justified by faith, not by working, doing good things. Because that way, he's saying no one's going to be justified. Now look at verse 17. He asked Peter a question. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ... We just find ourselves also among the sinners. Literally in the Greek it says, literally find ourselves as sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? He says, absolutely not. He says, well, what's Paul saying? Well, it's a bit complicated. (laughs) Let me summarize. He's saying, Peter, here's what's going to bring you out of your pride and your ignorance and your pain and your sin. He says, Peter, you got to find yourself because, Peter, you've lost yourself, right? Now you got to find yourself now. But where, let's ask, does Peter have to find himself? Well, he gives him a clue by asking him a question. He asks him a fallen, uh, his fallen brother a question. He says, Peter, why are you still so surprised to find there's still sin in your heart? Why are you surprised by that, Peter? Don't you know the gospel, right? Don't you get that you are loved and accepted beyond your wildest dreams while at the same time you're a moral failure, Peter? He says, you've got to find yourself in this place. 
both wretched and beloved, both at the same time. And if you take one away, let me tell you, you don't have Christianity. You'll lose it. See, the only thing that'll bring you out of your sin and your pride and your hurt is seeing, first of all, you've got those things in spades in your life. But as you trust Jesus as your Lord and rescuer and redeemer, now you're loved and you now become seen as if you were the perfect son of God himself. Oh, think of how the father sees the son. I mean, can you see the father's heart exploding with love for the son? I mean, have you, if you have them, have you ever seen your child? Do something amazing. Oh, I have. This past week, man, I've got a child who struggles to play sports. Man, he struggles in sports, but he does it to please his daddy and his father's heart. And even though he plays baseball and he strikes out all the time, last week he swung at a pitch. I think he probably closed his eyes. Man, he hit it so far. Man, over the outfielder's heads, all the way to the fence. He was so stunned. He stood there and watched it. Man, he just watched it go. He couldn't believe he had done it. And his mom is cheering for him. His teammates are cheering for him. The stands are cheering for him. His grandparents are cheering for him. I'm coaching first, waving around the bases, screaming at him to run with tears in my eyes as he goes around the bases. Listen, that doesn't even scratch the surface of how much the Heavenly Father loves his perfect son. And what changes your life is when you know he sees you the same way right now. That's what changes you. That's what changes your life. And this is different than any other kind of faith system conservative faith systems, maybe conservative churches you grow up in, tells you you can't sin or God doesn't love you. You're out. Or liberal and modern faith systems say, just live how you want to. Man, how you are is fine. No need to ever change. But only Christianity says that you are not fine how you are. You are desperately in need of rescue and transformation. You cannot stay the same. And at the same time says, you have someone who loves the hot mess you are, just as you are, because he's given himself to rescue you and to change you and bring you out of where you are. Paul's saying, listen, you've got to find yourself right here, Peter, in this place, seeing yourself as worse than you ever imagined, which is why, Peter, you still struggle with racism 15 years later. You're worse than you thought. But you're loved, Peter, beyond what your heart could ever dream of because it cost, Peter, your master, Jesus, everything to rescue a poor fisherman like you. So now let's ask, what did this do for Peter? Oh, it worked. It worked. It worked. How do we know? Because we know this. We know Peter walked out this line of the gospel all the way to his own death. See, even though he fell here, he got back up. He walked the line. He held the church together. And he walked it out to the point of being martyred and killed for the Son of God. He wrote a new chapter, didn't he? Got a new chapter, a better chapter. He died a hero. And today, no matter your story, you can do the same. You can write a new story this morning if you will see yourself, find yourself worse than you thought. <laughs> but more love than you could ever hope. Loved by a heavenly Father whose heart explodes at even the smallest effort you make to please and touch his heart. See, if you'll find yourself today like Peter, your breakthrough can come. Do you believe that? Let's pray as we close. Our band's gonna come minister to us as we sing and respond in song. Oh, Father, we come to you. We're just thanking you for these truths. Lord, give us grace today as a church to walk the line. Walk the line. Walk it out.
Give us grace to become the strong, to receive into our lives those who are so different than us. Lord, and finally, give us grace this morning to find ourselves in this place that you say we are, really. If you're here this morning, you say, you know what, I'm just struggling with this deep sense of affirmation, the father's affirmation, maybe it's the mother's affirmation, parental affirmation, just struggling with that sense today. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Maybe like Aaron Day or Cassandra, you've had issues. That's okay. Yeah. Church, this is why we have a Savior. Lord, I'm praying for these now in these moments. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak to them. They would hear the words perhaps they've never heard before. That you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Help these hearts and souls to hear that now.